The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the time that we can come around our screen right now to gather and focus our attention on what you have done in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may this be a time where we reflect deeply on the love that you have shown by sending Jesus to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a famous saying that was popularized long ago by Benjamin Franklin. Many of you have heard it. He said, there is nothing in this world about which we can be certain except, fill in the blank, that's right, death and taxes. And as Christians, we know that there's actually much more that we can be certain about, but we can definitely say with biblical authority that Benjamin Franklin was at least partially right. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, says Hebrews 9, 27. We all will die. One of the great tragedies and tragic realities of our world is that there is an inevitable end that we all must face. Yes, let's give it a name, death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in that single sentence, we learn at least these three truths. First, death is our enemy. This book was written to Christians. The Corinthian church was being told, yes, Death, even for you, is an enemy, a formidable, vicious enemy. Secondly, there is a precious promise that Jesus will ultimately destroy this enemy on behalf of his children. And finally, we know that this is the last, the ultimate enemy that will ever be experienced by the believer. Tonight is Good Friday. It's the evening when we traditionally set our attention deeply on the cross of Christ. And we weep with joy because of the magnitude of what Jesus did on our behalf. The death of Christ is the principal event in all of history. If history is like a wheel, every single event that has ever occurred is like a spoke leading to this central event in history, the cross. His death was a death unlike any other. But in order to understand why, we need to do a little bit of work to answer the question, what exactly is death? So tonight, I'm going to preach a short sermon called A Brief Biography of Death. But this message is simply designed to be the first part of a greater message. So please return on Sunday morning so that you can hear a brief biography of life. Let's consider the nature of death in all its forms, past, present, and future. In the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he designed them to live forever. And God declared, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. At that point, there was no death. And why would there be death? You see, there's an equation within the pages of Scripture that is always true. It is a formula that always works. It is that sin equals death, or that sin results in death. So Adam and Eve and all living creatures existed in the garden with the promise of waking up every day 
with the immensity of God's love and presence on them and the fullness of God's joy in them. Just as we are limited by our ability to imagine the extreme realities of eternity, of heaven, and of hell, so Adam and Eve would have been unable to fully comprehend the extreme and horrid nature of the consequences of their sin. They had never seen death. They had never experienced death. They had never smelled the putrid and disturbing scent of bodily decay. They didn't really seem to get it. But in their rebellion... They ate the forbidden fruit, and God did exactly what he said he would do. He cursed them with death, and immediately they experienced spiritual death, separation from God. Eventually, they would experience physical death. That is why they are no longer here. And finally, unless they repented, they ultimately experienced eternal death in hell. There were many curses that God spoke over the serpent and Adam and Eve, But he, chief among them, was the one that he spoke long before they had broken the command. When you eat that fruit, you will die. So death entered into the world, but Adam was not the first to taste physical death. And even though Eve was the first to taste that fruit, she was not the first to taste the grave. Rather, God drew the first blood. He saw that they were naked. He saw that they were ashamed. So what did he do? He killed an animal to cover them. Imagine what Adam and Eve must have been thinking when God was doing this. They had never seen death. And this is a creature that God had given to be under their command, under their authority. They named this animal. And God took it and slaughtered it and took its skin away from it and placed it over Adam and Eve for a covering. And why? It was for their sake, to cover their shame. God killed an innocent creature on their behalf, which was only required because of their sin. But that was just an animal. What about the first human to die? Again, it was not Adam, and it was not Eve. Rather, it was their son who was the first to have his life snuffed out of his body. As you know, his death came at the hand of his brother. Because the Hebrew wording about what took place there when Eve bore and then bore again, it looks as though these were probably twins. It's possible that these two were identical twins. Consider that. Consider that when you and I would look at these two men, it's possible that we would see the same person. We would see them to look exactly the same from the outside. But God looks at the heart. So Cain was offended by God's response to him. And Cain rose up and killed his brother. And notice the irony here. In Matthew 23, 35, Jesus calls Abel righteous Abel. Do you see what is taking place? The ungodly, unrighteous son rises up and snuffs out the life of the righteous brother. Man has tasted physical death now for the first time, and the result was that many would follow in the way of Cain. They would use force and might and an iron grip to get what they want by way of violence. In fact, by the end of Genesis chapter 4, you learn of this man named Lamech, who basically used Cain's sin and God's uh, protection over Cain as an excuse for his own actions of murder. And the centuries came, and the centuries went, 
and we have very, very little information about what was going on in the intermediate time across the earth. But then when we arrive at the life of Noah, we get a summary statement that is very helpful. Reweed quote, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. People were killing each other. The humans that God designed to live forever in the fullness of joy were just increasing the tempo of the curse by prematurely casting people's souls into eternity by killing them. Death was a hungry beast, and people were feeding it. But the greatest death toll did not actually come at the hands of men. God determined that he himself would levy destruction, unlike the world has ever seen before or since, to remind us that he judges the wicked. God utterly remade the earth by exterminating nearly 100% of the global population. God sent a flood to maim this planet with continent-shattering brutality, and he did this to blast a reminder that sin deserves punishment. Sin deserves death. Sin deserves the unvented wrath of God. If you've been to a funeral, this was the greatest funeral in history. God covered up and buried nearly 100% of this world's population. After the flood, mankind went on living and dying, and some of them by way of natural death, some of them by violence, some by products of the fall, such as plague and pestilence. But the death rate always remained at 100%. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That is the nature of death in the past, and there you can see how it connects to the future, or the present, rather. We see that in the past, it entered into the world because of this moment of sin in the garden. But it continues on through us because we are sinners by nature and choice. Yesterday, I was on the way to the church, and I was driving down Wontaw Avenue, and between my house and the church, there is a funeral home. And as I was driving past, they began to flash the lights and, re and reveal that they were going to be pulling out with the hearse. This has happened to be on many occasions. Usually, there is a long procession of many cars that follow this hearse, and they turn on their flashers. And this occasion was different. In this occasion, sadly, there were only two cars flashing their lights as they made their way onto the Southern State Parkway and headed out east. Two cars, likely due to the coronavirus. In our world, we are mostly protected from the realities of death. We don't see many dead things. We don't kill our own food. Well, most of us don't. Mike Langevin, more than most of us does. We don't often come into contact with other dead things. Unless it's an insect that we stomp on ourselves, we don't see death regularly. And even when people die, we are rarely confronted with them face to face until after they have been artificially beautified by a mortician. The majority of our engagement with the idea of death is through movies and television and video games. But instead of making the reality of death more authentic to us, that rather has the tendency to make it seem more like fiction. Like that's something that happens in that box on my desk rather than something that will occasionally happen to people I know or ultimately happen to me. When you play a video game and you kill a hundred enemies made out of pixels, it can be difficult to consider 
that when real humans die, there is a departure of the soul from their body. Right now, many of us are being faced with our own mortality. Many of you have lost friends or family members to COVID-19. Some of you work in the medical field, and you daily come into contact with those people who are staring the jaws of death in the face. And perhaps the reality of death has gripped you in this season more than it ever has in the past. Don't waste that. It is no accident that God is permitting this virus to have a temporary moment of seeming victory. God is always doing more things than we would be able to number, even if we had an eternity to count them. But we can be certain that one of the things that he is doing in the church is what Moses asked the Lord to do for Israel in Psalm 90. Teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. The coral snake and the king snake are very similar. They both have red and black and yellow stripes, but they do have two significant differences. One is the order of their colors, and the second is that one is venomous and the other is not. When I was growing up, we actually learned a, a song or a saying in order to remember which one is which. Red on black, friend of Jack. Red on yellow, kill a fellow. Death for a Christian and death for an unbeliever are very much the same experience in some ways. We both stop breathing. We both experience decay. We both get put into a box and we get lowered into the ground. And we both have our soul depart from our bodies. But one of those deaths has no venom. One of those deaths has no sting. In order to understand why, we need to look to Jesus at the cross. Roughly 2,000 years ago, God sent a son, his second Adam, his one and only perfect son from heaven, a righteous Jesus who walked this earth in perfection. And just like Adam, Jesus was filled with joy and delight in doing the will of God. But unlike Adam, Jesus continued. He never sinned. And therefore, he never deserved to taste death. Unlike you and I, he was not born from the seed of Adam. He was born from the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sinless. And his sinless righteousness should result in everlasting physical life. Right? If he never sinned, he should never die. Sin equals or results in death. But at the same time, the only way for Adam's race to be restored to a right relationship with God was for a pure and blameless man to pay the penalty on their behalf. This is key. I love my kids. I love my children. And more than anything in the world, I desire for them to trust in Jesus Christ and experience his grace and be forgiven. But I cannot atone for their sins. I can't because I'm a sinner. I can't pay for their sins because I am unqualified. Our entire race is doomed to destruction and death because we are all guilty, both by nature and by choice, both by way of birth, being from the line of Adam, and by way of practice, that we do what we do because we desire to rebel against God. We want our own way, just like Adam and Eve did. But God killed an animal to cover Adam and Eve's shame, 
And in like manner, Jesus died to cover the sin and shame of his people. Adam and Eve sinned, but the punishment, that blood sacrifice that took place, was taken by another. Now, you and I have sinned, but if you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the punishment will never be poured out on you because God spent all of it on Jesus. And Jesus is also the greater Abel. We, the unrighteous, have put to death the only one who was truly worthy of life. You might not have physically been present at the crucifixion, but every single time you sin, every time you lie, every time you look at porn, every time you lash out in anger, every time you gossip, every time you fall, fail to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, every time you sin, you line up with those people who nailed Jesus to the cross and you cheer them on. Every time you sin, you gladly crucify the Lord of glory in your heart. Why? Because sin equals death. In fact, Jesus was unable to be killed unless he purposed to allow it. On multiple occasions, people attempted to kill Jesus, but the result was that Jesus never was in any danger. Consider the story of what happened when Jesus returned to his own hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, verses 29 through 30. He has spoken now at the synagogue, and the people have become enraged, and it says they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What? Jesus is outnumbered with his back up against a cliff and an entire village has gathered to viciously catapult him to the ravine floor below. And what does he do? He simply walks between them. He walks right through the middle of them, through their midst, and he goes away. This can only be explained by what he says later in John 10:18. He says, "No one takes my life from me." Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. No one had the authority to take the life out of Jesus' body. That is, until something changed. Jesus, the man who never sinned, took our sins on his shoulders. Consider these three verses that explains how a sinless Savior could experience the consequences of death. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. My sin was literally transferred to his body. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's people have committed iniquity, but God the Father has taken it away and he has laid it onto the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Martin Luther said, Jesus became the greatest sinner who ever lived in that moment. Not because of his own sin, but because he was smothered with the mountain of sin of millions of people who would eventually be saved. And all of their sin, my sin, and if you were in Christ, your sin was placed on his shoulders 
and he bore it there on the cross. That is why his death counted. That is why his death changed the nature of death forever. When he died, he actually paid for sin, and he paved the way to heaven for all who would ever be saved. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19 says that you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers. And here's how you were ransomed. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you were bought with a price, it is referencing this death of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14 says it this way, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. But it's not just that he forgave us. How did he do that? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with our legal demands. But he couldn't just hit a cancel button. He says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That record of debt, that list of consequences of our sin, the, the list of our uh, our great atrocities against God were nailed to that cross. And Jesus canceled their debt by paying for it. But the glorious nature of the cross is that the death of Jesus changed the very nature of death for those that he came to save. Death is a doorway. It is a path, but it is, it is a path to one of two places. It is like a fork in the road. It either opens the door to eternal life or to eternal destruction. And this is why Jesus taught us to place our fears in the right place. He says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is why we do not become despondent in the face of death. We do not lose heart, Paul says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. And this is why when death co uh, coils up and it strikes one of our church family members, our informed mourning is mixed with sorrow, but is ultimately one of joy. Paul lovingly explained to the Thessalonians, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We have a hope even in death. Consider some of the great lyrics of the songs that remind us of these truths, these songs that when we gather together, we sing these rejoicing in what Christ has done. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. What of this one? Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. And those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. I fear no foe, with you at hand to bless, though ills have weight and tears their bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave your victory? I triumph still if you abide with me. 
while I draw this fleeting breath? When mine eyes shall close in death? When I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. And say, when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Or when that day arrives and the race is won, and when our griefs give way to deliverance, we will fully know, as we are fully known, all our groans will end, and new songs begin. And a multitude from every tribe and tongue, wearing robes of white, will stand before your throne, and our hearts will be so consumed by you that we will never cease to praise. Why can we sing these truths? Why can we declare these realities? Only because Jesus has taken the poison out of the serpent of death for all who would ever be saved. He drained it on that hill when that serpent struck his heel and he crushed its head. That venom that was meant for me went into Christ. When Jesus says, it is finished, he struck a death blow to death itself. I have called this a short biography of death. I did not call it a short history of death, because I also want to speak to the future of this curse. Concerning the end of all things, Paul writes in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death always looks like losing. It appears that Jesus was losing when he was on the cross. His enemies believed they had defeated him at that moment, but Jesus was victorious at the cross and death was swallowed up in his victory. And our perishing bodies will be replaced by new and glorious bodies that are uninfected by sin and unaffected by the curse of death. Why? Because Jesus won. For the believer, death will prove to be a defeated enemy. John writes in Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Allow me to land with one final verse from Revelation 20, verse 14, concerning how death itself will come to an end. We read, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Right now, COVID-19 has caused most of us to stare into the reality of death. Please recognize that this is a mercy of the Lord. He has removed so many of the distractions so that we might ponder our finite limitations and even our ultimate destiny. At the end of all things, God is going to crumple up death like a filthy napkin and toss it away. But the point being made for the unbeliever is that death will no longer exist. But for those who rebel against Christ, there is something much worse in store. Death is an event it is something that happens in a moment. The second death is permanent. It is perpetual, eternal, enduring, unending, everlasting punishment. And anyone who is in the hearing of my voice, I plead with you. I plead with you right now to look 
to Jesus who died, Jesus who was crucified for sin. See him who tasted death for many. See the one who laid down his life for our sake. See that in him alone you find hope for your soul. Believer, I encourage you to know that when you draw that final breath, you can hold fast to the promise that you are going to hear what the thief on the cross heard. Today, you will be with me in paradise. As I mentioned at the outset, this is only part of the story. I encourage you, please join us again on Resurrection Sunday morning as we consider a brief biography of life and as we celebrate that this crucified Savior was not able to be held by death. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your great kindness that in love you sent your Son to be a propitiation for all who would believe, that you covered the sin of all who would believe, that you would atone for the sin of all, all who would believe, that you would justify all that you have elected and called. God, I pray for every last person hearing my voice. If they are saved, I pray that you would give them joy, even as we somberly consider the truth of the crucifixion. And I pray for those who don't know you, that you would bring them to the end of themselves. Lord, I pray that you would break their heart and their rebellion and bring them to their knees before Jesus now, rather than at the last day. God, please, I pray that you would let this be a day of remembrance as we consider deeply the things of Christ. Amen.